This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. As we uh, continue in this book together, I I I have had a reoccurring theme from people that um, have... I would say incredible prayer lives, people I look up to deeply who have shared ongoing confirming ideas or words from the Lord that they are sensing that God is using Ephesians to break something open in us. Uh, let, me, let me just say I agree wholeheartedly and would say yes and amen. Last week, Pastor Wayne preached, I would argue the best sermon that has ever been preached in this church. It was incredible, not just because of the content, but because we went past as a community listening to a text and observing a text, but we were drawn into the chorus of praise and sang along with the saints what Christ has done. And, and I want us to understand that what we are reading here in Ephesians, we can fall into a trap of just believing that our job is to be good students and listen to the teacher and take good notes and try and grasp and understand what the text is saying. Let me, let me just take that pressure off and say you will never grasp or understand the fullness of what is being declared. It is mind-boggling. That is why this song of praise is not meant for us to come and sit as good students, but a song calls us to enter into and join in the chorus of praise. As I was studying this, I I asked myself this question, why do we, Redemption Alhambra, but why do we as a a human race, a people, why do we struggle with praise and worship? Why is it so hard for us to get into a posture of praise and worship? And a couple things came to my mind. One is we want to uh, go back to that original lie where Satan told us that we could know good and evil apart from God. That instead of living in the beauty and the wonder and worshiping the one who created us and trusting him, we wanted to ascend to a place where we determine good and evil. And so what we do now is sit back and critique. Uh, We do this in so many areas of our lives. One is as a culture, the most famous popular shows, reality shows, where we know nothing about singing, but we become critics of it. They get done singing, and all of a sudden, you're just like, a little pitchy. A little pitchy. She will not be getting my vote. Didn't feel it. She doesn't have that it factor. None of us know what we're talking about at all. <laughs> it's like when I watch uh, the Winter Olympics, right? 
or the Summer Olympics, whatever it is. You learn one thing and you look for that. You know, like when the, tramp, when the person goes and does the whole tumbling act and they, they jump on the beam and they land and you're waiting. You know nothing of what they're doing, but when they land, if they, if they hop a little bit, you're like, ooh, she hopped. She just lost it. <laughs> Everything, all of a sudden, we sit back and critique because we really would be more comfortable in determining what is good and evil than worshiping the one who is good. We feel the necessity to understand. As if we could really grasp what it means to be chosen before the foundations of the earth. And we sit in a room like this and sit back and, 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 and instead of entering into a song of praise, we send in an email saying, that's not fair that God would choose. That's not good. What I loved about last week is Pastor Wayne preached on predestination. There's other churches across our city, across our world, that when that message is preached, they're getting emails and debates and arguments over the validity of predestination. But last week, we took a moment to stop trying to analyze it and just worship him and praise him, the one who chose us before the foundation of the world as if we could grasp it. We're uncomfortable because we would rather be praised. Here's what I mean by that. We love putting our ideas out there. That's why Facebook and Twitter and social media is so popular. Everything, we want everybody to know, I should say something. I'm going to say something. I'm going to say something. Listen, I'm going to say something strong. And we put it out there as, as loud as we can, exclamation points, emoji cons. And what are we waiting for? Somebody to thumbs up us. <laughs> that desire to be praised actually scientifically sets off a, a trigger in us. That when we receive that sort of affirmation, we crave more of it. We would rather be affirmed than worship. Listen, as we're heralding our ideologies, our political persuasions, whether you realize it or not, you're praising something. You're praising someone. You're lifting up a Savior. And as you praise, you're putting yourself in a position to be understanding of things as if you understand the complexities of the whole system that we are in. So we struggle because we think we know and we think we should know. Another thing that we struggle with this week will play into it, and that is familiarity. We grow numb to things we think we understand. Once we've heard the story or watched the movie, or once we've listened to the song, I, I, I get in that, I listen to the song first time, I'm like, oh my, oh, oh I, woo, I didn't see that, ooh, I didn't see that coming. And so I put it on repeat, and the more I listen to it, I'm like, I, ooh, and now I know where stuff drops, I'm ready, I'm ready, right? 
And then I call it my jam. That's my jam, right? I fell into this. My kids loved 21 Pilots for a while. We're listening to it. I learned all the songs. And so I thought, I'm going to get them a birthday present. I'm going to buy them tickets. The sold-out concerts, tens of thousands of people. I bought tickets for my wife, my two boys, myself, Tucson. We drove there. But it, the concert wasn't until February. It was like eight months away. I bought the tickets. My kids were so pumped. And we go to the concert. I'm like, Kyrus, are you pumped? 21 Pilots? He's like, Dad, I haven't liked them for a while, you know. <laughs> that was so eight months ago, right? He had listened to it so much. He stopped enjoying. At a church called Redemption, we can fall into that pattern of thinking we understand this verse 7 because we've heard it so much. So you won't enter into the song of praise because you think you've already given praise. You get it. So I pray that as we hear this song of praise today, that we won't just critique it or we won't become numb to it, but that we will be overwhelmed and entered into this song of praise again together because I want you to hear this from me. Paul is not giving the church of Ephesus a sales pitch. He's not doing that. He's not coming to the church of Ephesus and saying to the church of Ephesus, listen, if you receive Christ, you get all these benefits. He's not a used car salesman who comes and knows all the benefits of a car but drives another one. He's not coming to the church of Ephesus trying to sell them something. And here's, here's what I want you to, to hear from me. Whenever, whenever I put something out, even just a scripture, I've put out verses on, on Facebook and, and people want to argue over just a verse. I'm like, I didn't even write it. I just copied and pasted it. But whenever on this week I had three birthdays and I put out there my wife on her birthday, I put out there uh, uh, just a little song of praise about how amazing she is. And I, I will tell you this. I, I've been married to her almost 20 years. I've known her for close to 22. She continues to blow me away. I continue to see new things and I, I continue to feel more and more overwhelmed by her wonder, her beauty. She, 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 she blows me away. And I put this little thing out there and then everybody out there, there was not one critique who said, you know, uh, you didn't expound on that enough or you didn't say this enough or you, you know, you didn't, you should have said this also. There wasn't one critique. Everybody just goes, you're right. She's amazing. They joined in praise. Why? Because I wasn't trying to sell my wife off like, hey, you all can, you all can have her. I, I was just amazed by who she was. And, and there may be some people who see what we have and in my praise of her, there, there, hear me on this, there wasn't an intent for me to have you want her, but there's a dimension of it that when you're praising something and truly praising something, there's a dimension of it where people will be drawn to it. 
There's never a, a missional intention. So Paul is not trying to see people come to know Jesus through this song of praise. But in his song of adoration and praise, people, as a dimension, get drawn to it. Here's, here's our problem as a church. We really believe it's our job to sell Jesus. Like we got to get out there and, 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 and lay out all the benefits. So we've even made up benefits that scripture doesn't even give us. <laughs> Come to know Jesus, you'll have forgiveness, adoption, and you're like running through all the ones that scripture says, and a new car. <laughs> and all the riches of the world. And, and, and we start making up prosperity. We start making up benefits just so we could, what do I got to get to do? What do I got to get you to do to sign right now for Jesus? And then after we give our hard sales pitch, we walk out and get into our car of consumerism. And we get into our car of idealism. We get into our, all of our idols. We go worship and praise all of our idols. And they go, you don't even drive the car you're trying to sell me. We would become a far more missional people if we focused on praising and worshiping and being overwhelmed by the beauty and wonder of what we have in Christ. This reality of what we are seeing today is not Paul calling them to come and you can get all these benefits, but he's calling them to enter into the praise and worship of the one in which they have already received great joy and benefits. So let's stand. With that in mind, I'm going to read the whole song. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. You're like, this song is on repeat. We've read it three weeks in a row. Well, get ready for four more weeks, okay? Let's stand together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us as adoption to adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mysteries of his will according to his purpose that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his will, that we who were the first to hope in him, Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and belief in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possessions of it to the praise of his glory. And the church said, amen. You may be seated. We're focusing in on just one verse today. Verse 7, 
One verse of the whole song. And the reason why we don't just read that is because we don't want you to get caught up in just thinking this is the only thing. But I do want you to hear today that in this verse 7, the only way I, I, as I was meditating on this that I felt, man, I, I want to hone is just to kind of break this part a couple words at a time. So let's start with the beginning. In him. In him. Everybody say, in him. This is a key uh, part of me reading the whole text because I kept trying to accent in my voice how many times it kept saying, in him. His praise, his glory in him. The thrust of this whole section is this is about Jesus. Wayne preached that thing. I don't need to go down that, that, that song again. But this is about Jesus. This is about him. I could sit up here and do all I can to preach myself happy about all the benefits that we get, but I am convinced that there are many Christians who would be satisfied to have all the benefits of Christ without Christ himself. They would love to have redemption, forgiveness, predestination, all those things, and, and, and are not consumed with the beauty of the one in which that Access is only made available to them. What I love about this text is how many times Paul keeps saying, in him, in him, in him, in the beloved, his praise, his glory. And, and, and if, you were in, if he was in our culture, we'd call him a name dropper. Because to that, a name dropper is by, uh, by far one of the worst things you could do. It's a negative connotation. It's when somebody drops somebody's name because they want everybody in the room to know that they are speaking out of a relationship with the person that they're talking about. So they're drawing upon a power and authority based upon a relationship with somebody they have. So we say, well, yeah, why do you got to drop names? I mean... It's a negative connotation, but as Christians, my goodness, we're the biggest name droppers of all. We call on the name of Jesus and, and name the name of Jesus and, and, and talk about all that we have only because of who he is. We draw on his power and authority and who he is and what he has conquered over and over and over again. We should be dropping the name of Jesus all the time. Because at his name, every knee shall bow. Every tongue should confess that he is Lord. This is all about Jesus. In him. In him. We. That word is strategically placed there. And it says we rather than me. And I think that's or I is important because it's important for us to know that this that Christ has done is for who he has chosen. It's for us. This gospel is for all. This gospel is bigger than just I. Now, why is that important? Because if it is for us, I am a part of that. But if it is for me, it doesn't mean you're a part of it. Because there are benefits that I have that are mine that aren't necessarily yours. 
So what he's intentionally doing here is highlighting the communal nature of this so that we, the people of God, could hear this is what we have received through Christ. What does that do? When we say we, it changes a couple things. One, it does change how you see yourself. It does change how you see yourself. But most of us in this room are only concerned with how we see ourselves and we're not concerned with how we see other people. Because when you say we, it not only changes the way you see yourself, it changes the way I see you. Because now this same redemption and forgiveness is not just something I have, it's something you have, and I should treat you as such. It changes my identity, but it changes my, my relationships. A lot of, of gospel preaching is rightfully preaching about a new identity. That's important. But truncated. It shrinks it down to individual benefits, and we wonder why in an individualistic culture, people are more concerned with what they get out of the deal than they are about their relationships with others. This forces you to see the power of being in the family of God not just having a personal relationship with God. The American church loves the idea of a personal relationship with God because all that matters is me and Jesus. And he keeps saying, hold on, hold on. You can't love me and hate my family. You can't do it. If you love me and you hate your brother, you don't love me. This calls me into something greater than just a personal relationship with Christ. Not less than, but greater than. We. That statement alone, that one word alone is so important, especially for the text where Paul is preaching to a church who is made up of Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slave and free. Those people who have been a part of this old narrative of all that has taken place. There were a chosen people, and those people who he was talking to, like Pastor Wayne talked about last week, he talked about how he called them all sons. That statement is important. But here he's saying we for that very same reason because now he's including people who have been excluded for a long time. They don't have the history. They don't have the narrative. They weren't brought into that. Now he's intentionally saying we because that changes a couple of things. Now I look at you differently. Now no longer are you the outsider. Now you're a part. We, in him, Christ, we have two things. Redemption, according to this verse, and what else? Forgiveness. Redemption and forgiveness. Now this is important because when Scripture talks about redemption and forgiveness, often those two things are put together. Those words are, are, are often in the same verses together. Redemption and forgiveness seem to be partnered so much so that when somebody's asked what does redemption mean, they think, oh, it means I'm forgiven. 
But these two are partnered together so closely for a very important reason. And let's try to uh, unpack that for a minute. One is this. Redemption is borrowed from Exodus imagery. Meaning there were a people who were slaves. There were a people who were trapped and slaves. His people were slaves to the Egyptian people. And these people, when they, when they hear the word, when they hear the word uh, redemption, the Jewish heart and mind, it rings of what? What they knew, Exodus. That was their story. They were oppressed. They were enslaved. They were victimized. And they had been redeemed. What does that mean? Christ came in and didn't buy them back, right? What did he do through this? He killed their enemy, drew them out, brought them through the waters. They came to the other side, conquered them, delivered them. He delivered them. He redeemed them. He brought them back. He conquered they're enemies, and he freed them. There's a, an elements of freedom from bondage. There's elements of, of, of exodus imagery. And so when they hear this redemption thing, the Jewish mind is going, oh, I know what that means. That's our story. Huh. But, 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 but this one puts us in a spot where we are trapped and victims and we're the damsel in distress. Whenever we watch a movie, right, we either are the superhero who comes down and conquers the enemy and frees the damsel in distress, or we are the damsel in distress. Now, believe me, that is powerful imagery and true imagery. But the reason it's partnered with forgiveness is because forgiveness brings this other connotation that you're not just the damsel in distress, you're also the villain. You're not just the one who was the slave, but you're the slave owner. You're not just the one who needs this redemption out of. You're the one who's manipulated and victimized and done sinful things. These two so closely partnered together are beautiful because when the Jewish mind would hear this, they would go, yes, we are redeemed. But now he's saying you also need forgiveness. But for the Gentile mind who knows they need forgiveness, also they get brought into a story that they were never a part of for a long time. Now we have received redemption and forgiveness. And and here's what you you need to understand. I'm not pitting one against the other because we love to think of ourselves as the one who needs to be rescued. And hear me on this. You need to be rescued. But in order for him to come kill your enemy and rescue you, he's got to kill you. And now it puts us in a curious spot. Because as we cry out for freedom and killing our enemies, we realize, hold on a minute. Uh, uh, You got to kill me. Uh, Okay. Because it is true. 
Scripture shows us that we are born into a system of sin. We are by nature sinful, meaning we enter into a system controlled by rulers and powers and darknesses of this age. There's a powerful structure and system that's controlled by demonic forces that is oppressing the people of God. There is this complete uh, reality to the idea that we are victims of a sinful cosmic reality. Ephesians 6 plays big time into that. I don't want to fast forward too much, but we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. There is a system of oppression. And the reality of it is when we start talking about systematic problems and and when we start to call it systemic issues and, and problems that are there, many people get frustrated because they're so used to, no, it's all about personal choice. Give me a break. Yes, there is personal choice. Yes, there is sinful behaviors that have perpetuated it. But there is also a system of oppression that have kept the poor poor. No, they can't just pull themselves up by the bootstraps and get themselves out of it. There's a whole system working against them. And when you only narrow in on personal choice and behavior, you miss that we are born into a world of sin, meaning we are by nature sinful. And here's the other problem, that even those who are born into oppression and and are crying out for freedom have to come to a different place that every day they are also choosing to actively victimize and manipulate, and they are by choice sinning. Everyone in this room, by nature and choice, are sinful. Not only am I the victim, I'm the villain. Not only am I a part of a demonic structure, I am influenced by demonic structures. I have perpetuated those demonic structures. Huh. So when he says, in him, we have redemption and forgiveness, here's the proclamation, church. You are no longer a slave to the systems and powers and rulers and demonic structures in this world. You are sons. You are not a slave. You are not trapped. You're free. In Christ, you are free. You're no longer the villain. You're forgiven. You're not his enemy. You're his friend. You're his child. You're not dirty. You're clean. Now, give me a minute to praise him for that. Thank you, Jesus, for setting me free from all demonic powers and rulers and authorities for bringing me out. And thank you for for forgiving me and washing me and cleansing me and making me your own. If that wasn't enough, we could praise him. But then we have to ask this question. Who can do that? How does that happen? Scripture says it, this verse says it, through his blood and according to the riches of his grace. 
We, we're used to thinking about his blood and realizing, oh, the blood, it's free for me. Thank you. I love it. It's so free. It's freely given to me. And in our vernacular, when we think something is free, we think it's cheap. The reality is just because something's free doesn't mean it's cheap. It just means you could never pay for it. It means you don't understand the cost of it. It means and even if you did understand the cost of it, you don't got enough. So the only way you could get it is just by receiving it. So don't cheapen. Don't cheapen it because it's free. Because the reality is it is the most costly thing that could ever be purchased. I, I, I used to collect baseball cards as a youngster. Now, my dad's sitting in the front row here, so I told him early on, I said, listen, for years I, I, I lived under the turmoil of being used as an illustration. So now that you're old and crookedy, you're going to be used <laughs> as an illustration. You abused me all these years using me as an example, right? Now he's going to be the example, right? Love you, Dad. I collected baseball cards, and I would get a subscription to a Beckett. A Beckett was a book that would tell you the worth of the baseball card. So I'd buy a pack of cards. I'd spend my money. I worked at Little Caesars. I'd get these things up, and there was a stick of gum that you'd never chew. You'd just kind of and throw it up. But I, out of one of those packs... Got my subscription to the Beckett, went and checked, and I found a card that was worth 100 bucks, according to the Beckett. I got a plastic case that cost me 20 bucks. I put it inside that thing. I went to my dad. I said, Dad, this card, 100 bucks. The hundreds I've spent are paid off. <laughs> my dad said something to me. He said, that ain't worth 100 bucks. I said, yes, it is. Look at the Beckett. Look at right here. It's 100 bucks. He said, it ain't worth 100 bucks. I'll believe it's worth 100 bucks when somebody pays you 100 bucks for it. Walked away angry. <laughs> but he makes a good point. Because I could sit up here on this stage all day long and point you to Genesis chapter 1 and tell you, you have been created in the image and likeness of the creator. You have his image on you. The value that you have, look at what Scripture says. Look at the Beckett. Look at what it says. He has valued you as an image bearer of God. And then you hear somebody say, well, you ain't worth it unless somebody can pay for it. So then when we turned against what he created us in and sought after our own value and other things and rebelled against the God who created us and made us and said, no, 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 you don't deserve the praise, I do. And we ended up eating pig slop. And we come running back to the Father, and he looks at us, his image bearers, and he could have caught a deal. He could have paid for us what we were worth at that moment which is pig slop. 
but he knows the value that he paid, that he created you in, because he didn't just, he didn't pay for your value and do what you were earned and what you deserve. He placed his image on you, and the only thing that could pay for what he had created you and given you value was, was to send his son, created in his image and likeness, and that he would spill his blood, and that his very image would be, would be paid for our redemption, unless someone pays it. It's just a Beckett. What this verse is saying is that not just does Scripture say that, 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 that you are worth the image of his son. He sent his very image and paid the price, and the price is paid. Now, that's good because I could say something's worth a million bucks and be willing to pay a million bucks unless I got the riches to pay it. It ain't going to, the, 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 the check's going to bounce. I could say you're worth a million. I could send a check to you. But he says, according to the riches of his glorious grace. Here's what he said. You're worth it. I paid it. And I'm the only one who has enough to pay it. If you want to know your value as a redeemed people, you have to look at, he's declared your worth, he's paid for your worth with his blood, and the check cashed. You are an image bearer of God. By creation and declaration, by his blood, and by the riches of his grace. We are worth what Christ paid for us. We are worth what Christ paid for us. Not worth what we have earned or deserved or worked for. We are, worked what we are worth what Christ has paid for us. He declared it. He paid it. And it is paid in full. Matter of fact, it says he gives us the Holy Spirit so that it's a down payment. We're on layaway waiting for possession of it. This whole thing's done. This whole thing's done. Now, I could stand up here and preach to you all day. I could stand up here and scream to you all day, but I will tell you this. There's a story I heard, and some of you may have heard it, about a man named Johnny Lingo. There was a missionary who went to third world country, and he was learning the customs of this, of this tribe that he was living in. And part of the customs is that if a man wanted to marry a woman, he had to pay a dowry in cows. So if you wanted kind of an average wife, you'd pay about three cows. This is what he was learning. If your wife was below average, you could get a deal at maybe one, maybe two. Top dollar, six cows. That was the most ever been paid. If you had above average, you were four or five. It was kind of a rating system, right? It's kind of our, she's a dime piece, or she's a nine, or whatever, right? We got our own bartering system, too, just, theirs was cows. The missionary's learning this, and he's learning the kind of system in which it's in, and he met a man named Johnny Lingo, and Johnny Lingo said, sir, I'm marrying an eight-cow wife, and he said, uh, you could probably get a better deal and get the same, you know. Six is the most that's ever been paid. He said, I'm getting an eight cow. He said, well, my goodness, I hope to see that wife. I've only seen a six cow wife. Most of the time, three, sometimes ones and twos. They turn out good sometimes, too. <laughs> he said, sir, I'm getting an eight cow wife. You better believe it. And he said, okay. 
So the missionary goes back home to kind of raise money, and he gets communication from Johnny Lingo. And Johnny Lingo said, sir, I married me an eight-cow wife. And he goes, oh, my goodness, I can't get, wait, wait to get back to the village and figure out who this eight-cow woman is because I never saw one in that village. He says, who is it, Johnny? And Johnny, over communication, says to him, yeah, says the name of this girl. And he's racking his brain. Eventually, he kind of seeks the, maybe I heard him wrong. There's no way that girl's worth eight cows. She was very plain, very frail, simple, quiet. The missionary goes back to the tribe. He gets to the, the tribe there and meets all the people, hasn't seen Johnny yet, but wants to see this woman. The tribe comes, did you hear? He paid eight cows. He goes, really? Who was it? Did I hear right? They start talking about her. No, 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 it was her. For real? Yeah, for real. He could have got a way better deal. Then all of a sudden, the missionary sees Johnny walking out with this beautiful, gorgeous woman. It's like she's glowing. He walks out and Johnny's smiling and she is radiant and everybody goes, oh. he's like, that cannot be her. The missionary walks up to Johnny and the closer he gets, he starts to see kind of reflections of this girl that was plain and simple who is beautiful and glowing and gorgeous. And he walks up to Johnny and he goes, oh my goodness, she is an eight cow wife. I've never seen such beauty and elegance and radiance. She's amazing. He goes, what happened, Johnny? He goes, well, I paid eight cows for her because of the value I saw in her, not because of the value everybody else put on her or she put on herself. So that when she went around town, everybody would ask her, uh, are you the one who got paid eight cows for? And with a huge smile on her face, she would, yes. And then she started living into her worth uh, started upping her game, started uh, believing that she was more valuable than she even thought she was. And she realized that she had somebody who, who, who determined her value not based upon anything else. And she started living into this reality. And here is the beauty of the gospel. He didn't pay for you what you're worth according to your standards, according to worldly standards. He paid the worth that his father gave to us. And not only did he pay it, he's the only one who could. And not only was he the only one who could, the check bounced. I mean, it didn't bounce. It, it went through. It went through. It cashed. It's done. Now, if, if you start focusing on yourself, you'll find every reason to negotiate with God on what he could pay if he would just forgive you. Or what he could pay. You, I'll give you a deal, God, I promise. I, I, I come and show, Or you would think highly of yourself and think he should pay more. You'll live in pride. But when you start to meditate on his blood, and you start to see what he did and the price that he paid. And when you enter into a place 
where you hear about redemption and forgiveness and don't respond with pride but respond with praise, you'll start living your life in line with what he's paid for you and the work that he's accomplished. Church, there's, there's no other way to respond to a sermon like this than by partaking of communion and remembering what he's done for you. I wish you could just have a glimpse this morning of how much you're worth. When I say you, I don't just mean you individually. I mean you, the people of God. I wish you had a glimpse of it. Because if you did, you would have nothing to give but praise, worship, adoration. Before the foundations of the world, he chose you. He brought you in. He purchased you. He redeemed you. He forgave you. And it's all done. Not by studying a book or understanding scripture, although that's powerful and important. It's only done by knowing Christ and being in covenant with him and being in him. So as you come to this table, I pray that you remember, you meditate, and you become so overwhelmed that we bust out in song together of the glorious work that Christ has done for us. The tables are open. Let's respond in worship together. was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.